what science fiction usually wants from AI, from these conscious machines, is actually not exactly a butler, but a slave. We want someone who is competent and obedient and to whom we owe nothing. We don't want someone who makes any demands on us. We want a robot that you could treat like shit if you wanted. Is it right to treat our future robots as slaves? Celebrated author Ted Chang tackles that question in his science fiction stories and in this episode of the Fiction Science Podcast. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, the mastermind behind Cosmic Log and one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co-host, science fiction writer Dominica Fetaplace, as we talk with Ted Chang about artificial intelligence, time travel, and how having one of his stories adapted for a Hollywood movie changed his life. If you could see your whole life from start to finish, would you change things? That line, spoken by actress Amy Adams in the movie Arrival, encapsulates the kinds of questions that spark thought-provoking science fiction stories for Ted Chang. One of his novellas, Story of Your Life, provided the inspiration for the 2016 film. In his most recent short story collection, Exhalation, Chang spins imaginative tales about time travel, artificial intelligence, alien life, bioethics, and predestination. In Chang's hands, these themes go way beyond mere plot devices. Delving deeply into the human condition is one of Chang's trademarks. And that's one reason why he's receiving an award this month from the Arthur C. Clarke Foundation for his use of imagination in the service of society. He's also one of the newest members of the Museum of Pop Culture's Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. Ted Chang came to the Seattle area 30 years ago to take a technical writing job at Microsoft, and technical writing is still part of his resume. But today, his fame stretches far beyond Seattle. The New York Times has called his stories mind-bending and deeply beautiful, while The New Yorker calls him one of the most influential science fiction writers of his generation. When Dominica and I connected over Zoom with Ted at his home in Bellevue, Washington, we started out talking about the Arthur C. Clarke Foundation's award and the coronavirus pandemic, but we ended up doing our own thought experiments about AI and time travel and focusing on two of his short stories— one titled Life Cycle of Software Objects, and the other called The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate. If you haven't read those stories yet, you might enjoy revisiting this podcast after you have. But you don't need to read a word to enjoy this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Ted, and congratulations on the Arthur C. Clarke Foundation's Unleash Imagination Award for using imagination in service to society. And there's a special call-out to the crises that have been facing humanity lately. Between the pandemic and politics and rising concerns about the effects of technologies, frankly, it's been a crazy year for crises. Uh, During the foundation ceremony, you will be taking part in a conversation on the themes of crisis and imagination. And I'd love it if you could share a little bit of your perspective 
about the craziness of the past few months and the role that the creative process can play in helping us make sense out of all this. I don't know that I have an enormous amount of wisdom to share on you know what has been happening you know in 2020 because uh, yeah it is it has been a crazy year and uh, it has been confounding for me as as it has been for most everyone else I think as for the role of like creativity and I'll I'll say that rather than talking specifically about the creative process but I'll talk about the role of say art in general one question that I've seen come up is does uh, does art have any role to play in times of crisis such as this? You know, is art important? Uh, can art help us? I guess I think that I think art is important, and art you know can help us in times like these uh, because art is one way to, to sort of make sense of a world which uh, on its own does not make much sense. Art can impose a kind of order onto things. And I think art's power to to help us, you know, it is not unlimited, but I think that it is, it is still essential. I think that, I guess I think, you know, we would probably be worse off without art than we are uh, right now. So, it doesn't offer a cure-all because I don't think there is going to be any easy cure-all, but I think art will help us. Art, art helps us get by in these stressful times. So you you read a lot of science fiction and you write a lot of science fiction, and it feels like a very science fictional year. So did being a science fiction fan help prepare you for the weirdness of this year or no? I, mean, I don't think anyone was really prepared for this year. But uh, a lot of people certainly have been comparing the events of this year with works of science fiction, various movies about pandemics uh, or novels about pandemics. So uh, I think certainly you know, science fiction has given people you know, a certain conception of what pandemics might look like. And the actual pandemic has turned out somewhat different than most of the ones that we've read about. Yeah, this is nothing like Earth Abides. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess, you know, we, science fiction is, is, is I think, where we uh, look to for our models of what a pandemic looks like. Because I, I don't think most people have a clear sense of, say, what the, um, uh, what the influenza pandemic actually looked like. We may have some vague knowledge of that, but yeah, that... like like fifty to one hundred million people died. I learned that. I'm learning so much about the year 1918 in the year 2020. Woodrow Wilson got it and didn't tell anybody. All these people got it. But yeah, you know, uh, so yeah, that that certainly provides, I like, I think, a very close precedent. But yeah, it's not something that was really in the popular consciousness very much. I remember in the early days. People were asking, well, is this really bad? How bad was this or is this? And uh, one of the experts was saying, well, this isn't the killing blow, but it came pretty damn close. And I was thinking at the time, I think this was in March or April or so, and I was thinking, well, gee, this this doesn't seem so bad. It's not like uh, 28 Days or, or any of the science fiction films 
but it did turn out to be surprisingly serious in its effects. And, and it makes you realize how potentially fragile our whole economic system is or our public health system. There must be something that you will be chewing on in the months and years ahead about what the lessons of these past few months have been. I guess one thing that I hope people will take away from this is that we've not immediately descended into a kind of every man for himself uh, melee. You know, it has not been sort of like the end of civil society, which I think is a fairly common scenario in fiction and movie depictions of almost any disaster that people are immediately like, uh, you know, re resort to shooting each other for food or things like that. You know, maybe that's an indication of the fact that this pandemic did not have the sort of swift, dramatic uh, severity that a lot of movie pandemics do. But it's worth thinking about that traditional depictions of uh, pandemics don't spend much time, I think, on people sort of coming together and trying to support each other. That, that, that is not typically a, um, a, a theme in stories about you know, disaster or, or enormous crisis. Because I guess the narrative is usually, you know, it's like the end of civilization. And people have not you know, turned on each other in that way. The, the greatest conflict uh, that we see generated is, you know, I guess, from people who don't believe in it versus everyone else and and again you know that might be a product of the fact that it is not as severe if it looked like various movie pandemics it'd probably be hard for anyone to deny that it was happening and so it may be that people's resistance to believing in in the pandemic has to do with the fact that they are fixated on sort of a very graphic real disastrous scenario and anything less than that doesn't qualify yeah, that's really interesting. It does seem like this disinformation and denialism is like a big problem in our culture. And it feels like it's becoming kind of bigger. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer of fiction and I sort of feel like in one sense, fiction is on the decline because fewer people are reading books and stories. But on the other sense, like fiction that marks itself as true is on the rise because people are believing these uh incredible things. Uh, what can be done about disinformation, do you think? <laughs> um, I think that, that, that question is, is above my pay grade. You know, I don't think there's um, uh, going to be a simple uh, solution to that. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people sort of, you know, working on that problem. But I don't know if there's a, a clear path to, you know, fixing that problem. If I were a hardcore technologist, I'd probably say that AI is going to fix everything, that uh, we'll have some agent that goes through and, and figures out what's actually true and what, what isn't. And I, I know that's the sort of thing that you've written about is what artificial intelligence can do for us or is doing to us. Are there some ideas that crop up in terms of... Uh, what AI can do, or at least what we can do, so that AI doesn't harm. Well, that's a that's a that's a big question. I think Facebook uh, would like to have us believe that AI will be able to 
identify disinformation and and cull it in an automated fashion. I'm extremely dubious about that. I'm, I'm really skeptical, partly because, yeah, you know, maybe just because it's Facebook making that claim. But there is a question of how much is Facebook actually motivated to to do that? How how much does it fit with their business model to actually suppress disinformation? I don't know that it is. I don't think it actually works with their business model to, to suppress disinformation. But if they genuinely were interested in suppressing disinformation, would AI be the the best way to do it? Yeah, I, I don't know. Is that a potential fertile field for science fiction to address that issue? Uh, you've addressed uh, so many philosophical issues about this in the past. It seems to me like this would be a great place for a Ted Chang story to take it to the next level. Well, okay, so I guess this would be uh, an appropriate time to talk about all the different things we mean when we say AI. You know, when we talk about AI in science fiction, we're talking about something very different than what we mean when we say AI in the context of current technology. In science fiction, AI means some sort of conscious software, something that is very much like a person, uh, something that has most of the capabilities of a human being and uh, often capabilities that exceed that of human beings. Uh, but it can be thought of as a person for most purposes. When people talk about AI in the real world, they're not talking about anything like that. They're talking about a certain type of software that is usually a, um, it's like a superpowered version of applied statistics, you know, statistical modeling. Would anyone, any ad which says like, oh, you know, our new product powered by AI, what they mean is like, it's powered by applied statistics. There's nothing like a, a person or anything, anything remotely like a person, anything that has any of the characteristics that, you know, we associate with uh, human intelligence. They just mean it's like it was driven by a lot of data, which we ran some statistical analysis on, and we're, uh, we're using that. It's a, it's a very interesting technology, but it's an entirely different technology than what most science fiction writers talk about. And you know, I think uh, the fact that we happen to be using the same term to describe these radically different technologies, one which is real and one which is pretty much entirely hypothetical, that I think causes a lot of uh, confusion. Yeah, thank you uh, for that clarification. I thought that was just really well put. Uh, when you mentioned this applied statistics, that got me thinking of uh, GPT-3, that's the uh, OpenAI text completion program. Uh, are you familiar with it? Uh, I've been reading about it. Yeah. Uh, so do people ever ask you if this is going to replace human writers? Because I get asked that all the time. And what do you tell them when you are asked? Oh, but I want you to tell them no. <laughs> um, I mean, and I guess, can, uh, can you tell me what, like, what, you, what your uh, rationale is before I go? <laughs> yeah. That's fine. Well, first of all, I always kind of object. There's always something like a little bit passive aggressive about someone uh, bringing it up. It's like, oh, do you think that this applied statistics program could do your job? And so I always even resent the question. I wonder if it's being asked in, in bad faith. So I want to assure you I'm, that's not what I'm doing here. 
But I think that people, when they approach a story, they're kind of hungering for a human connection, any type of story. I mean, this, this type of uh, text completion maybe could have replaced sports reporting at this point, if you just want to just re- report on the statistics in the order that they happened. We could do that now, but but people don't really want that. They still want to hear humans give their opinions of the game. So so people seem to want a human connection that I don't think an applied statistics program will be able to replace. Yes, uh, I I would agree with that. It is of course interesting, you know, to see like you know what sort of things people initially think of as being sort of uh, vulnerable to uh, replacement by AI software. It's usually not the job of the person asking these questions or, you know, you know, because I mean, people who ask these things, they're, they're usually, yeah, they, yeah, they, I think they are maybe subtly casting aspersions on someone else's profession uh, rather than their own. Some people will definitely be thinking about its, its implications for their own profession, but I, I, I yeah, I, I guess I don't think most people asking that are, or at least I guess in the context that you're talking about, um, but so, okay. So, like with regard to GPT three, I don't think GPT three or you know any of its immediate successors will pose uh, a significant threat, if only because you know GPT three has an extremely short attention span. It can sort of maintain a train of thought over a few sentences, but you know it loses it, that you know over a p- page. And so, even to write a short story, you know that would require a big uh, leap. And to to write a novel, to write something like a three hundred page novel, that I think I think that would require like a, maybe a, an entirely different approach than GPT uses. But more generally, what is the threat that AI generated fiction might pose to human authors? Using you know AI, you know, some some program written with a, maybe a, a a somewhat different paradigm than GPT. So I guess I don't think of it as being a major threat. And again, talking about what, it depends on what sort of time scale we're talking about here. Because let's say let's say someone some some software is capable of generating a coherent novel, not a you know not a great novel, but a novel that at least is is uh, stays coherent for you know two hundred pages or three hundred pages. Would that pose a threat to authors? I'm not sure that it would, because I think that, um, well, like, okay, for one thing, if you if you think about like the price of a book and how much of that the price of a book goes to paying the author, it's not that big a fraction. So cutting out the author is not going to generate enormous cost savings for anyone. So, you know, in that sense, it is a form of human labor which doesn't have enormous market value, and so it, it's like semi-skilled labor, <laughs> in in I mean, a sense. I'm not going to call it semi-skilled labor, but it is something which I I don't know that having AI do it would generate like such a powerful cost savings that you know we'd have a anyone would have a strong incentive to do that if we could get software generated novels that were coherent but not not uh, necessarily particularly good i think there would there would be a market for them because 
if you can buy a novel for a dollar, something that is readable, there, 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 there are plenty of people who would pay a dollar or, you know, or 50 cents or, you know, I don't know, you know, some, some small amount of money for a, uh, a readable novel. But, uh, you know, right now there, I think there are already, there's been a sort of a boom in self-published books, self-published fiction. A lot of those are, um, in ebook form, a lot of those are very cheap and, you know, they have, there is an audience for that. You know, there is a market for that. But you know, I think that that does not put traditional publishing out of business. It's it's expanded the offerings available, and so there's kind of a a sort of a wider range of fiction available for for readers. But yeah, it is not it is it is it is not the main problem that traditional publishing faces. So yeah, so I think that uh, yeah, here I I definitely agree with you, Dominica, that a lot of what people want when they buy a traditionally published novel are um, things that will be very hard to do with AI. For an AI to generate a novel that that you think of as really good, that you know you feel like, oh wow, th- this novel was was both gripping and caused me to you know think about my life in a new way. That I think is going to be very very hard. You know, then we're talking about AI in the sense that we normally talk about it in science fiction terms. You might very well need an AI which is as capable as a person is is in many ways equivalent to a person in order to write a novel like that. Maybe, uh, maybe not, but I think it, you'd have to get a lot closer to that end the spectrum. So yeah, I, you know, I it's it's not impossible because I certainly don't think that AI as uh, as we see in science fiction, I don't think that's impossible. I think it is possible for software to be conscious and to you know be like a person but that is a long way off no one is really working on that certainly nothing that is going on currently in ai research resembles that in any way yeah mostly it's yeah sort of yeah how do we build more powerful applied statistical models and again you know that's very interesting and useful and gpt3 shows us how surprisingly useful it can be but yeah, if you're looking for a connection with another person, yeah, that's that's a, that's another matter entirely. You addressed this whole question in one of your short stories, the life cycle of software objects, and I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the backstory on that short story because uh, when I was reading it, it, it reminded me, for for better or worse, of raising someone who is, for example, on the spectrum, uh, all the things that. Uh, that parents have to go through with uh, challenging children. In that story and others, you really address this issue of parenting and how parenting applies and how you can twist the paradigm by using a story about virtual individuals. Can you talk a little bit about the process that went into knitting that story together uh, and whether this applies to what we've just been discussing about how the field of AI in the science fiction sense might progress in the real world? Um, sure. So one of the one of the things that fed into my writing that story had to do with, I guess, a kind of dissatisfaction with the way AI is often depicted in science fiction. And here we're talking about AI that is you know, very much like a person because you know, a lot of stories, they imagine something which is 
you know, it's, it's a product like a robot that comes in a box and you flip it on and suddenly you have a butler, a, a perfectly competent and loyal and obedient butler. You know, that, that uh, I think sort of jumps over all these steps and questions because butlers don't just happen. Butlers have an entire lifetime, you know, behind them. The, the, right now, the best way we know of, you know, to make a, a person, you start off with a baby and, you know, babies are, make terrible butlers. Children make terrible butlers. How many years of, of experience do you think is a minimum before you can get a loyal and obedient and competent butler? 20 years, maybe more. And, you know, and this is not a, you know, this is not a diss against babies because, you know, babies, they are incredibly smart. Uh, it's, it's just that, yeah, yeah. If we could, if we could create an AI that was as smart as a human baby, you know, like yeah, in in some ways, like problem solved, you know, because that's that would be an, an incredible achievement. But yeah, th- you know that that incredible achievement, a an AI that is as smart as a human baby, that does not give you the butler that you can just flip a switch and 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 you know wake up. You're still at least twenty years of you know training away from from your you know from your butler. Uh, the butler that you're looking for. So yeah, I guess you know one one of the things that I was sort of interested in exploring in in my story was, what does that 20 years look like? How do you go from something which is as smart as as a human to something that is the useful worker that science fiction usually wants from AI? What is required uh, to get there, and then if the things that are uh, that have to happen over those 20 years are those things that will ultimately make it very difficult for this AI to like, maybe like, maybe there'll be people who say like, I don't want this AI to be a butler or like, maybe, maybe, maybe I want more of this AI because someone is going to have to invest a lot of time and effort. You know, like if you were to try and pay people, it's like, okay, you give someone Here's here's a human baby, and I'm going to come back in 20 years, and you'll you'll give me back uh, someone who is a uh, a competent and obedient uh, butler. Like, how much would you have to pay that person to do that for 20 years? Is you know you probably have to pay a few people to to split up the work, but that's going to be a lot of effort. And is that something that anyone would undertake just for money? Maybe the only way that you can undertake that, you know, that amount of effort is if there is an emotional investment too, because pretty much every person who is a good worker, they had parents. And if they had parents who you know, were, loved them, were good at, you know, good parents, you know, that might actually contribute to them being good workers. Because you might think like, hey, you know, People who are raised by really negligent parents, maybe they don't make good workers. Maybe those are maybe they don't make the best employees. You know, which is not to say that someone who is unloved by their parents will never amount to anything. I don't not, I don't mean that. But I mean I think that you know loving parents, you know, sort of, I think definitely increases the likelihood of a, of a child turning into an adult who you want to hire as an employee, or you want you know someone who basically is good at the things that we want human beings to be good at. Loving parents probably will increase the chances of, of that. Then when you have 
loving parents or some you know some equivalent then there there are issues like what science fiction usually wants from ai from these conscious machines is actually not exactly a butler but a slave we want someone who is competent and obedient and to whom we owe nothing we d- we don't want someone who makes any demands on us we want a a, a robot that could treat like shit if you wanted mm-hmm. I, I mean certainly one that yeah you know, like you don't want to pay uh, you're not going to pay them a lot. You're not going to give them, you know, uh, a, a great salary. Right. Just plug uh, them in and use them. Yes. So yeah, that's what that's what people sort of want from their robot butlers. But if someone invested emotionally in that for 20 years, like, well, then you know, like maybe they don't want uh, that to uh, to be treated like shit. Maybe they want that robot or conscious software to have some kind of autonomy to have a good life. You know, it, we don't even have to go with the you know, the parenting analogy so closely. If you have raised an animal for many years and then you're going to give up that animal to somebody, you will want that animal to probably go to someone who will treat it well. You don't want it to go to some to someone who is likely to abuse it. If you've trained an animal, you've trained an animal to be, you know, uh, you know, a seeing eye dog or a bomb sniffing dog or any anything like that, you have probably invested emotionally in that animal. And even from a f- purely practical perspective, it's like this seeing eye dog is not going to do the best job at being a seeing eye dog if you abuse it. This bomb sniffing dog is not going to do the best job at sniffing out bombs if you abuse it. So... Uh, those are some of the questions that I was interested in examining with my story. Everybody probably asks you how your life has changed since the movie Arrival came out, uh, and you're probably pretty tired about answering that question, but I, I think I had to try asking the question anyway. Is there anything you want to say about that? I don't know that it's, it's changed my life in a dramatic fashion. All I can say is that it's been great to see my work reach a you know, much wider audience. Yeah, a lot of people saw the movie, and uh, a lot of people bought uh, my collection of short stories after seeing the movie. Uh, I'm sure it also prompted people to buy my new collection as well. So, yeah, my work has uh, been read by people who would not describe themselves as science fiction readers, by people who don't usually read a lot of science fiction. And that's been really gratifying. It's not something that I ever really expected. I always thought of myself as, you know, a science fiction writer writing for science fiction readers. Uh, so it's been it's been very cool to to see that my work is connecting with people outside of the field that I um, I came up in. Yeah, and I just wanted to add, I think uh, not only bringing new people to science fiction, you're bringing new people to short fiction. So as a writer of short fiction myself, I really appreciate that. Yes, that's, that, you know, that has been great uh, as well. Because, yeah, it's, yeah, I think um, a lot of people don't, you know, they only read novels and they are, you know, they tend to overlook short fiction. And I think, yeah, they often don't think of themselves as short story readers. So yeah, it's that has also been gratifying to see that yeah, my work has maybe yeah also reached a sort of a crossover audience across um, those lines as well. Well, I really enjoyed your 
uh, latest collection of stories, Exhalation, and I'm holding my breath, uh, waiting for more. Uh, one of the themes in uh, at least a couple of the stories in Exhalation have to do with time travel and the deep personal issues that come from thinking about time travel. Uh, if you were to time travel back to an earlier point in, in your career or your childhood or whatever, are there things that you would like to tell your earlier self, as uh, some of the characters did in, in one of your stories in Exhalation? Um, no, I don't think so. I, you know, well, okay, so in, in the story you're referring to, Merchant Alchemist Gate, uh, for one thing, you know, like the character, he remembers hearing this information from his older self when he was young. And so, um, you know, that's an entirely different, you know, scenario because, you know, like I was not visited by an older version of myself when I was young. So, yeah, so I, 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 I certainly can't say like, uh, you know, oh, yeah, you know, now's the time. But, you know, I guess more more generally, you know, I guess I'm, you know, it's, I guess when people play this, this you know, sort of thought experiment, I guess, you know, it's not really clear to me, like, is there a time in your life when uh, you think some advice from your future self would have actually radically changed your your behavior? I, I'm, I guess I'm not sure how often that's the case. You know, and like, okay, so not, 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 not speaking about me personally, but like, just in general, like, if someone had gone back, to, like, if, you know, like, somebody was like, oh, like, if only I had known, like, I would have majored in this rather than that. I don't know, if, if, if when you were entering college, if your older self came to you and said, don't major in this, major in this other thing. Would you immediately say, well, okay, I'll better do that. You know, like, I, I think you'd probably like, no, why? I don't, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm so confused. Yeah, I, I don't know that it would have, have the desired effect. I, I suppose, uh, as in the story, it, it, it's more about going back to that human connection. In fact, uh, maybe going back, uh, if you had the chance, you... You could uh, tell your younger self, you know, you're going to go through some crazy things, but it's all going to be okay. I, that might be that might be what I'd do. Uh, I don't know how much good it would do. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe. Um, but when you are in the in the middle of suffering, hearing that eventually your suffering will end and you know, it'll be okay, that doesn't make your suffering go away. Like, okay. Someone who had an unhappy childhood, are you, you know, if you went back and said, like, don't worry, you're going to be a happy adult, like, how, how is that useful? That's not going to solve their problem. Um, that, that's where the tips come in, I, I suppose. I don't know. Yeah, but what, what, what tips could they possibly act on that would you know, improve their situation then and there? I, 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 yeah, I guess it's never been clear to me, you know, what form these tips would take. You, do you want to say, like, what would you tell your younger self like buy apple stock you know like that's, that's not going to pay off for a long time if you were miserable in high school or something you know i'm not i don't know what what piece of advice would help your younger self you know at, at least it's hard for me to think of that maybe maybe i don't know dominica can you think of a point when like you were unhappy as a child and like some advice from your future self would have really you know cheered you up or made you feel better no, probably. I do think I kind of enact this exercise as a writing teacher, though, <laughs> and as a math teacher. In a sense, I'm trying to teach my students, but also I find myself really talking to my younger self sometimes. Well, okay. So when you're talking to your younger self, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining like that helps you. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's not great, actually, because when you're teaching someone, you're really supposed to be looking at them and their situation and not uh, not projecting your own stuff. But it just it, it just happens and you just sometimes slip. Yeah. So, well, see, that's, you know, that's a difference. That's a, that's a whole different exercise. You know, like talking to your younger self might help you, but does it help? You know, <laughs> it doesn't help the younger self. You know? That's right. Yeah. That's, um, I guess that just uh, kind of supports your point. It, you know, if we're talking about a time travel situation, yeah, like that's a very different type of conversation, I think. There are definitely some times when I would go back and tell my younger self, listen to what your dad is saying. Uh, I sh- I should have taken that advice when he was giving it, but and do you think you do you think that, would that work? I think, think it would. I think it would. Yeah, I think it would because at the time I was thinking, huh, he's telling me something. Uh, I you know I, I think it could have pushed me over the edge. I, I mean, I would have been very impressed to have a visit from my older self. That that would just blow me away. Maybe, maybe, but I also wonder, like if. You know, maybe we were just all very resistant to advice from older people when we were young. I don't know that, you know, why would we be more likely to take advice from someone claiming to be our older self than we are from our parents, who, you know, we have known our entire lives. Wow, we could keep going on this for another couple hours, I think, and uh, over a beverage uh, of your favorite choice. But uh, I- I'm loving this conversation. I I'm a little regretful to call it to an end. Maybe my future self will come back and tell me, oh, you should keep going. But uh, I I think we're going to have to close it off there. I I really appreciate this and, and, uh, and really recommend to anybody listening out there to take a look at Exhalation Stories by Ted Chang and uh, look forward to the next adventure and listen to your future self. Well, I mean, actually, if if you get a visit from your future self and his only piece of advice is to is to redo this interview. Then I think that bodes really well for the future. You know, <laughs> if, if, if that's if that's you know the the most important change that he wants to make, it's like, well, you know, like okay, I think that's super super reassuring. To learn more about Ted Chang and his writings, including Exhalation, as well as some of the thought-provoking essays that he's written recently, check out the Cosmic Log posting at fictionscienceclub.com. And while you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. You can follow the link from Cosmic Log. One of Dominica's short stories is included in Volume 5 of The Best Science Fiction of the Year, a collection edited by Neil Clark. I'd like to thank Ted for the interview and thank James Emley for his rendition of the Cosmic Log theme. We'd love for you to subscribe to the Fiction Science Podcast and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. Until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.